That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends. Happy New Year. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and the first Reporters Roundtable of 2022. Of course, there was no way this new year could have started without looking back to the first week of last year, January 6, 2021, which will always be remembered as one of the worst days in American history, the impact of which is far from over. To mark the occasion, President Biden made history with a powerful speech from the Capitol Rotunda yesterday, the first time a sitting president has called the former president a liar. He urged leaders of both parties to come together to rebuild our democracy, yet in a sober reminder of how divided the country still is, just a couple of hours later, for a prayer service to remember the victims of January 6th, only two Republicans showed up, Liz Cheney and her father. In related news, Democrats pushed for a vote on voting rights legislation, and some former Trump White House staffers are now mounting an effort to expose and depose him. Here today to make some sense of it all, three of Washington's top political reporters, starting with Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Hi, Sabrina. Hi, how are you? Okay, Maya King joining us, national political reporter for Politico. Hello, Maya. Hi, Bill. And Igor Babish, senior politics reporter for HuffPost. Igor, welcome aboard. Morning. So uh, what we heard yesterday from President Biden, not only uh, Joe Biden like we've never heard him before, but um, a speech unlike any president in our history has ever given before, certainly one for the history books. I'd like to get each of your, your because you cover this, you were there, your reaction to the speech, uh, starting with three quotes from the president, one for each of you. Uh, let's start with uh, here, Sabrina, President Biden talking about the web of lies that the former president has spread. And here's the truth. The former president of the United States of America has created and spread a web of lies about the 2020 election. He's done so because he values power over principle because he sees his own interest as more important than his country's interest, than America's interest, and because his bruised ego matters more to him than our democracy or our Constitution. He can't accept he lost. Sabrina, you cover the White House of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Were you surprised to see this Joe Biden step forward? In many ways, yes, because President Biden has avoided or largely avoided talking about January 6th and even talking about former President Trump in the almost one year that he's been in office. He's focused uh, more on healing and his agenda. Um, They've often felt the White House that talking too much about Trump and even dwelling too much on January 6th um, is a distraction for Biden. Uh, They, you know, they just want to let the investigation unfold and not let it consume Biden's presidency. 
but you really heard him in um, no uncertain terms go after former President Trump and his allies, saying that they put a dagger at the throat of American democracy, um, and also very explicitly saying that Trump is not just the former president, he's the defeated former president. Um, it was really a speech that I think laid out, laid, you know, put this, laid out the stakes for um, just how fragile democracy can be, what the magnitude of that day truly was, and and, and kind of set it up, used it as a set piece for this particular moment um, in our country, given the concerns that Republicans and Trump are still out there spreading lies about the election. I don't think it's going to be something that Biden uh, continues to dwell on a great deal, but he certainly did not want to, uh, on this particular day, uh, lose sight of its significance. Uh, And Maya, the president went on to um, one by one, trying to refute the lies that have been spread by Donald Trump and his supporters, uh, and pointing out in this next clip one big inconsistency in the middle of their arguments, which is that the presidential election is the only one that they seem to have problems with. Again, President Biden. Governors, senators, House representatives, somehow those results are accurate on the same ballot. But the presidential race was flawed, and on the same ballot, the same day, cast by the same voters, the only difference, the former president didn't lose those races. He just lost the one that was his own. Again, my uh, uh, president, a uh, Biden that we've, we've never seen before. And he, he seemed to be um, setting the, the grounds for maybe a challenge from Trump in 2024. It's certainly possible. I think the through line in those comments is is the former president. The fact that uh, the folks who stormed the Capitol and the people who continue to uh, decry this lie that the election was stolen are basically repeating uh, the exact words of the former president that night that he got on TV and said that the election was his and that it would be impossible for him to lose. All of this has its roots in, in that speech and then again in his repeated rhetoric about uh, this election being stolen. And um, it was absolutely uh, uh, uncharacteristic of Biden, as has already been said, to take this directly to Trump. But I think this is spoken like the president that Biden was elected to be, the anti-Trump and the defender of democracy. We can talk a lot about, uh, you know, whether or not the Biden administration is making good on some of its other um, promises in terms of policy and and even um, getting us out of COVID and many other uh, many other things mm-hmm. that that you know, we can talk about later on this show, but I think at the core um, of of the Biden presidency and the core of his victory um, was the fact that he is not Trump and in the minds of particularly of many Democrats, that he would be uh, the president who would maintain democracy and push back against anti-small D democratic behavior. This is exactly what he did yesterday. And by taking that directly to Trump, again, almost in a, in a campaign fashion, kind of reminding me of 2020, um, making very clear the difference between uh, these two men as leaders. Uh, and Igor, he gave this speech uh, in the rotunda, which one year ago had been overrun by armed supporters of, of Donald Trump, uh, who claimed that they were there because they loved their country Uh, hear this next clip from President Biden, who takes that uh, fallacy on directly. You can't love your country only when you win. 
You can't obey the law only when it's convenient. You can't be patriotic when you embrace and enable lies. Uh, Igor, what? Uh, how did that resound to you, who were there, who was there in the Capitol last January six? Well, as you said, it was hard to miss the symbolism of him delivering the speech from a place where a year ago uh, you had rioters storming the building, uh, even defecating on its walls, uh, you know, smearing blood everywhere, um, chanting. Uh, you know, for the death of Mike Pence and other lawmakers, um, the symbolism was was really striking, um, and kind of represents where we are at this moment. You know, you have uh, Democrats calling out um, the importance of of the anniversary and what it means going forward, especially for the future of voting rights, um, and yet Republicans, some Republicans, still unwilling to. Um, recognize what happened that day and, and why people stormed the Capitol, why they showed up to D.C. that day. You know, you, Republicans are quick to, to say that the riot was unlawful, that these criminals should go to jail, but that's, that's as far as they're willing to go in terms of acknowledging the culpability of their party and their, and their president. Let me ask you also, Igor, um, you have written for Huffington Post about how the events of January 6th and this year that followed have really uh, impacted the um, the procedures, the the business of of the of the United States Congress. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that Congress is different uh, year after uh, January 6th, especially in the House, which is a lot more uh, ugly and and even I'm willing to venture say broken. Um, physical reminders of that day obviously remain the the uh, the metal detectors that are set up still on the entrances of the House floor because Democrats just you know they're they don't trust Republicans not to bring in guns onto the House floor, which is what uh, almost happened several times. Um, and in terms of you know the the tenor of the chamber, uh, people just hate each other. Uh, it used to be, you know, a thing set it private, and now, now it's very public, and you have lawmakers screaming at each other. What seems like almost every day, and and racist threats being flown around. Um, on the Senate side, things are a little bit more back to normal, uh, but there are lingering effects that Democrats who say that that they have trouble, you know, working with Republicans who who voted to object to the to the electoral results on January sixth. Uh, Sabrina, let's go back to the, the to the event yesterday, the events uh, yesterday at the Capitol. Um, the Republicans decided that their best response was just not to show up for the most part or not to say anything, with the remarkable exception of former Vice President Dick Cheney. Uh, Republicans uh, risking... Uh, their political futures here, or do you think that's the right approach? What's the, you know, what's the political analysis here? Well, I think the approach is in line with how Republicans have treated January 6th uh, for the greater part of the last year. You know, you had these initial condemnations from Republicans when it came to uh, former President Trump and his role in inciting the violence. There were quite a few Republicans, including, uh, then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, directly placing blame on on Trump uh, for how the events unfolded 
And even Kevin McCarthy at the time, as mm-hmm. we recall, was publicly feuding with Trump. But since then, a lot of Republicans have either just shied away from talking about January 6th altogether or accused Democrats of trying to politicize it. They've sought to downplay the events and said we should move on because, uh, and then of course, they're the, the, the true believers, the Jim Jordans and the other mem- Republican members of Congress who are uh, still very much uh, pushing a lot of conspiracy theories about the election in, in Trump's corner. And I think it's because they look at these polls and they see that Trump is still the, the de facto leader of the party. He still has uh, support from a majority of the Republican base. And what's happened is a majority of Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president, even though we know, of course, that it was an entirely free and fair election. Um, There's no questions around the legitimacy of the election, but Republicans have, in effect, by continuing to support Trump, um, allowed these uh, lies about the election to take hold within the party. And so it really is, I think, just seeking political cover to ignore January 6th, and in some ways still fanning the flames of a lot of the theories that led to the events of that day, because uh, I don't know if they believe it's going to help motivate turnout. Uh, There are questions about how, you know, Republicans would treat a future election, if they would be willing to certify it, is this laying the groundwork um, Mm -hmm. to try and overturn an election uh, in the coming years. But either way, I think the approach was very much in line with with how we've seen Republicans treat January 6th um, after, you know, the dust kind of settled and they realized that Trump still had the support of the party. Yeah, I still thought it was absolutely remarkable to see uh, Dick Cheney there yesterday and for Cheney to criticize members of his party for their reaction, uh, which you just outlined, Sabrina. And then also to say, I'm proud of Liz, (laughs) right, which was a very powerful statement. Maya, there's something that happened yesterday that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. I'd like to get your reaction. And that is the fact that, so here's the president of the United States about to give, I think, the most important speech of his presidency, uh, if not of his lifetime. And, and he gives, he shares the stage with his vice president, Kamala Harris, and lets her speak first. I cannot remember ever a president giving that much of a platform to his vice president. Yeah, I'm thinking about this um, through through a number of different lenses. One, the one that you just mentioned, the fact that this is kind of unprecedented for for the vice president to speak first, but um, you know, and then that that being significant in and of itself, even amid many many whispers or almost this open secret, right? That the vice president. Um, maybe uh, does not have as as large of a platform as many in her circle might have hoped uh, with this administration. But I think it was appropriate in this context because um, Vice President Harris is uh, has, as part of her portfolio, voting rights. And I think that when we're talking about uh, January 6th, this assault on democracy, the fragility of American democracy that goes hand in hand with this ongoing uh, fight, if you will, not just in Congress, but also state houses across the country uh, to either pass or block these very, very restrictive uh, voting laws that could really not only imperil Democrats' chances of success in November of this year, but uh, get in the way of of uh, a working and fully functioning democracy in this country. 
And I think it sends a message to have the vice president who uh, represents this fight in many ways and has taken it on as part of her portfolio uh, to 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 speak to this and speak first and sort of represent uh, this larger this what this larger moment means and what January sixth as part of uh, this this crisis that we're facing as a country and democracy uh, what that means and so it it certainly is unprecedented and a really um, I would say, a defining moment for the vice president's career up to this point as well. But to mm-hmm. me, it makes total sense um, in, in the larger scheme of things. And we will see both of them appear uh, next week in Atlanta, speaking about voting rights, the president and the vice president uh, as well. So um, the day before January 6th, Igor, the attorney general of the United States, who has been getting some criticism for not moving fast enough to deal with the those um, who were responsible for the insurrection, um, took uh, an unusual step of giving a speech himself about what the Justice Department is up to. Here, Attorney General Merrick Garland. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. What's he telling us, Igor? Well, I think the most important part there was his emphasizing at any level of, uh, <laughs> right. of, of orchestrator or person who was involved trying to, trying to get to the bottom of this. You know, the, the attorney general has been facing a lot of criticism for not being aggressive enough in going after these people. And uh, not not only the, the you know, the random guy who who ran up to the Capitol, but the people in the White House, uh, Donald Trump himself. Um, and it's not, you know, your run of the mill criticism. It, you know, you have Democrat Senate, Democratic senators saying that uh, Senator Richard Whitehouse uh today or yesterday saying that, uh, you know, sweeping up low, lower level players while ignoring the, the, the kingpins on upstream isn't a full investigation. So uh, I think that that speech was a recognition that, that, uh, of, of this criticism. Right. Recognition of the criticism and sort of uh, reassuring all of us, right, that there's more to come. Um, and we'll see, we'll see if, in fact, there is more to come uh, at people at higher levels. Uh, there was another um, little bit of news related to January 6th this week when we learned that some former Trump White House staffers are organizing to what they say to try and stop him. Who's involved in that? Will that succeed? Let's get into that with our panel next after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and today's roundtable with Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal, Maya King from Politico, Igor Babish from HuffPost. lot to talk about this week. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with today's panel. And today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the good men and women of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union under the leadership of President Mark Perrone, the men and women of the UFCW. They're the people who serve us uh, throughout the pandemic and beyond uh, at our great retail stores like Macy's and Nordstrom's, our great grocery chains, Lucky's and Safeway and others. 
the meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, cannabis plants, they are there on the front lines uh, doing a great job of serving America. The members of the UFCW, we salute them, thank them for their good work, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at ufcw.org. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And on this Friday, January 7th, we are back with today's Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Joining us, Igor Bobby, senior politics reporter for HuffPost, Maya King, national political reporter for Politico, and Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, so, Sabrina, you were there at the White House when Stephanie Grisham was the uh, press secretary. She never gave one briefing during her entire time as press secretary. Uh, but now, reportedly, she is organizing a group of former Trump staffers are going to meet next week to try to figure out what they can do to try and stop Donald Trump. Uh, what can they do, <laughs> Sabrina? I, I was going to say good luck with that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure what they can do, and I'm not sure where this was in the four years where many of these people worked in the Trump administration. Um, you know, Stephanie Grisham was a loyal ally during her time. Um, not yep. just as the press secretary, but also as the chief of staff to former first lady Melania Trump. Since then, she, of course, is one of the many former Trump officials who's written a book um, and I think is taking a much more uh, adversarial tone toward Trump, saying that she said about 15 of her former colleagues who work in the White House are, um, are having these informal chats 
uh, to figure out how to stop him. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, they wouldn't really, she wouldn't really give details on, on what they're trying, what their plans are exactly. Um, but I think that the, the reality is that, um, as, as I was saying earlier, he, Trump still has support from the overwhelming majority of the Republican Party. And I don't think that a group of former staffers can change course now. Uh, part of why he has support is because he was surrounded by enablers for the entire duration of his presidency. Um, so you can't sort of just put those worms back in the can. Um, but, it, but it is, I think, it, you know, it's, it, a lot of these people have also tried to engage in some degree of image rehabilitation. So if you, I kind of feel like you always have to take it with a grain of salt when you have these former Trump staffers who suddenly have seen the light and are talking about how they're going to join this like this this fight to, you know, take finally take down Trump, uh, which again just seems far fetched given the kind of hold and influence he still has over the party to the point where a lot of the Republican lawmakers who criticize him um, again in the aftermath of January sixth have been have since been seeking his endorsement as they run for reelection. Right. Uh, it, it is hard to imagine what uh, the uh, unelected former staffers uh, can could could possibly do. We'll see what comes of that next week. But uh, you you referenced something earlier, Sabrina. Maya, I want to ask you about which which reflects on again why these former staffers may not be more effective, and that is uh, some polls that we saw coming out this week showing. Um, I think an alarming uh, feeling, um, particularly among Republicans, about violence and the last election. Um, the Washington Post polls showing that one third of Americans believe that violence is sometimes justified. Uh, a poll released yesterday by the Hill Research Group showed that 33% of Americans, 33% of all Americans still believe that the 2020 election was stolen, and 13% of those 33% say that anything goes to try to get Trump back in the White House, including armed revolt. Maya, this says something about politics 2022 in America. Yeah, it's terrifying. Um, it's 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 a pretty. This is a really bleak message, but it should it should be a five alarm fire, I think, for folks, particularly those who um, are able to make uh, those in Congress. I think who are able to make these these decisions to try to stop some of this. But it's kind of it's hard also to see what what options they have um, at this juncture. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this in um, in terms of how this country looks on the world stage and the ways that January 6th and the insurrection sort of diminished America's standing as a beacon of democracy and what uh, not only this November holds, but November of 2024 holds. Um, if political violence is now the norm in this country, I, I it's, that's, that's no longer really a, a healthy democratic system. Um, and I, I'm thinking also about this in terms of the fact that, uh, you know, the president certainly, or the former president Trump has a lot of influence and is still very much the standard bearer for the Republican Party and also has a network, not just of people who 
um, are in elected office, but a number of foot soldiers, the kinds of people who came, who traveled to the Capitol on January 6th are still very much, uh, who still hold these views and might even be planning for the next time that they feel it's appropriate to do this. Um, it's, it, it should, it should set off alarms with everyone, um, in terms of the normalization or, or, and and the growing threat uh, of political violence in this country. I mean, there, there's not much more to say other than that this is extremely bleak. Uh, it, it is indeed. Um, Igor, the, the, the Washington Post poll was, uh, same, basically the same findings in the latest CBS poll. I mentioned this Pill Research poll yesterday as well. Um, certainly, violence, armed revolt against the government of the United States is something all of us grew up saying was never, never, never acceptable. How do we tr- how do we turn this around? And how much of it is due to Donald Trump's continuing uh, propagation prop- of the big lie? <laughs> well, I, I wish I had a better answer for you. I mean, uh, I've uh, I've sort of compared it to I don't know if, if you guys have seen the movie Don't Look Up yet, the the Netflix uh, Leo uh, climate change movie where you know where this comet is coming, and uh, you have mm. one segment of the population <laughs> not looking up. Uh, it's sort of like that where you have some people who just refuse to acknowledge reality and um, you know opening their eyes. That's uh, I, I don't know where we went wrong, and I wish I had a better answer. Uh, but, you know, absolutely, we got here because of lies and, and how you talk about uh, elections matters and, you know, the rhetoric and, and not only the people lying about it, but the people who know better and, and who have a responsibility to call it out, uh, who aren't calling it out. So I, I think that's that's crucial. Right. Um Sabrina, it seems from what we were talking that um, both the president and vice president yesterday mentioned the importance of voting rights legislation. Um, what do you hear from the White House? It appears that while they would like to get the Build Back Better bill passed, they're kind of putting that on the sidelines temporarily to make a push for voting rights. Do we read that correctly? Well, yes, I think that they've come under growing pressure uh, to do something on voting rights. And it, it simply, for a lot of civil rights activists have felt like voting rights has just not been a priority for this White House. And on Tuesday, uh, President Biden and uh, Vice President Harris are going to travel to Atlanta uh, to speak uh, about the urgency of passing voting rights legislation. I don't know how much a speech is going to satisfy critics, because the president has given speeches on voting rights before, uh, what they what people want is a plan, and what they want is action uh, when it comes to ac- actual legislation. This is coming at a time when many Republican-led states are passing laws to restrict ballot access and to especially make it harder for Black people to vote. Um, and so I think that there is a lot uh, more urgency on the around this issue, according to uh, not just activists, but a, a growing number of Democrats as well. And so there's the voting rights legislation that the White House supports, which would expand access to mail-in ballots and, uh, you know, expand access to early voting and put other protections in place. Um, it, it's been stalled for such a long time and it, it's not going to go anywhere truly, unless the president 
and Democrats embrace a filibuster carve-out for voting rights legislation. And so they can give all the speeches they want, but the, the legislative battle will remain the same unless Democrats are willing to make an exception to the filibuster and pass voting rights legislation with a simple majority vote. Now, they're going to need the moderates we often go back to, like Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, in order to be able to do that. Uh, but but a lot of it would depend on whether or not the president is willing to directly use the bully pulpit and put pressure on members of his party um, to advance legislation and, and himself endorse a filibuster carve-out and able to get it done. So what's the reality on the ground, Igor? Are the, are the votes there? Uh, at the moment, no. And um, there, you get a sense that Democrats are or trying to drum up momentum on this because their other big priority, uh, the Build Back Better uh, legislation is also stalled at the moment, uh, primarily due to the same person who's holding up voting rights. So they're kind of stuck in this uh, box they've created for themselves and in um, promising to their to their voters, their supporters and activists that they're going to get this done. Um, but they don't have the votes and it's it's a tough situation for them because they have 50 50 votes and any vote they lose um mm-hmm. that means they can't can't do what they want to do um and you got to remember i mean it was a huge surprise that they won the senate in the first place those two georgia runoffs a year ago everybody woke up uh the morning of january 6th and was was shocked that democrats managed to pull it out so they had grand, grand plans, but they're finding that, that uh, executing them is a bit, a bit tougher. Would you also rate the chances of uh, changing the filibuster as uh, between zero and nothing? Yeah, right now, I, I would say it's, it's, I mean, they might do some kind of minor thing, but in terms of getting voting rights through, I, I don't see it happening. Uh, so Maya, final question before we get to our favorite stories of the week. Here we are now in 2022. This is the year of the midterms. The Democrats insist they're going to be able to hold on to the House. And yet this week, we saw the 25th Democrat in the House announce that she is not going to run for re-election. 25 Democrats uh, have resigned. Um, does this make it impossible, Maya? It's, I would say, or at least just extremely difficult um, already <laughs> looking at the, the stakes that Democrats have to face. And I think it's a, a representation of, of just how toxic the climate on the Hill has gotten um, as sort of a, a, an offshoot of the toxic political climate in the rest of the country. Um, one thing that sticks out to me about sort of the profile of Democrat that has announced his or her retirement in the last few months these are a lot of moderates. These are people who are used to working across the aisle. These are our longtime uh, Democratic uh, legislators, people who have been in politics and been in the House for decades, who have kind of looked around and said, you know, this is a little bit too much for me at this point, and I'm going to pass the baton to somebody else. And I think that says something, especially when you think about also how mm-hmm. self-righteous a number of legislators tend to be, that now that uh, the House has gotten a little bit too hot for them. Um, And I'll just add to that, you know, this is, again, one of the many mounting uh, issues that Democrats have to face, because thinking about stalled legislation on Build Back Better, stalled legislation on voting rights, and even then before that, the failure of policing legislation uh, late last year, 
2021. I mean, this is maybe not front of mind for voters, but it certainly will be come November, especially if we're in the same kind of a situation. And what Democrats really need right now is enthusiasm among the base for the people who have always voted, even when things aren't looking the best for them to turn out and be able to say, I'm going to give you another chance. And they're just running out of reasons to even give those voters uh, a, a reason to turn out uh, later on this year in November. And so that's really what I'm thinking about now is, is mm-hmm. not only the, the resignations, but also what's happening a little bit closer to the ground, that voters are feeling the same kind of disillusionment. Yeah, it'd be tough enough to hold into the house uh, to hold on to the house uh, uh, anyway. But uh, with twenty five resignations, it makes it all the more uh, difficult. Uh, before we get to our favorite story of the week, I want to give a little shout out to uh, one of the members of our political roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod, uh, and that is uh, Mr. Jamal Simmons, a good friend, a great Democratic strategist. Uh, who has just accepted the job. He is the new communications director for the vice president of the United States, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, starting right away. Um, What a great team, Kamala Harris and Jamal Simmons. We want to congratulate uh, one of our own, uh, Jamal Simmons, and wish him well in his new job uh, at the White House. And now, as we wrap up, uh, thanks a lot to our panelists, Sabrina Siddiqui, Maya King, and Igor Babish. We always ask our panelists to um, uh, end the show by telling us what was the one story in the week that really captured uh, their attention, either uh, made you laugh, made you cry, made you scratch your head. Uh, Igor, start us off, your favorite story of the week. Oh, boy. I was very excited for this. Uh, oh, so <laughs> the, the absolute biggest story this week is what's going on with the number one tennis player in the world. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Novak Djokovic, um, <laughs> who uh, is stuck in detention in Australia <laughs> after getting an exemption uh, for not being right. Vaccinated with COVID. I mean, the, the guy is a bit of an anti-vaxxer. Yeah. Well, he's a yes. full-blown anti-vaxxer. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but he, he received an exemption from, you know, the, the Australian Open there. Um, but apparently at the last minute, the, the border authorities in Australia uh, denied his entry. So there's a bit of a internal political uh, tussle in Australia over whether, whether to let him in or not. But in the meantime, you know, he's being held in this hotel for refugees and you've got his his dad, his very outspoken sort of MAGA-like dad uh, doing all these interviews, calling him a martyr and saying that Serbians should take to the streets and <laughs> in Australia <laughs> to push back against this. Uh, the situation is hilarious. You know, you, you have Rafa Nadal, um, obviously his... Right. His uh, his competitor saying that you know rules are rules. If you're vaccinated, you can play. Uh, so at the moment, he's he's uh, in court trying to reverse this, this decision by the Australian authorities. Yeah, I saw his mother on the news last night saying, "Oh, this isn't fair. My son can't play." Yeah, get vaccinated, dude. Right, like everybody else. <laughs> but it really is high theater. I was hoping somebody would mention that story. Thank you, uh, Igor. Uh, Maya King, what caught your attention? Yeah, so um, amidst a very, very busy week here in Washington, another big political story of the week is the uh, swearing in of a new mayor in Atlanta. How Um, about it? 
Yeah. And, and it was at the Atlanta mayor's race really got swallowed up by a lot of other big political headlines, but um, Keisha Lance Bottoms, of course, stepping down uh, or deciding that she would not pursue another, um, uh, <laughs> would not pursue another term as mayor really uh, was a really big story. And so many months later now on Monday, after the swearing in of Andre Dickens, the new mayor of Atlanta, uh, Zach Cheney Rice at New York Magazine actually sat down with Keisha Lance Bottoms and asked her point blank, you know, why did you quit? And it's just this really great wide ranging interview uh, with na- the now former mayor of Atlanta, really well written profile covers everything from her childhood to the reason why she steps down, which really was the number of crises that she had to weather as mayor and the decision, frankly, to leave while she's at the top of her game. Um, and also her lemon pepper wing order, which I appreciated too. Um, very, very classic Atlanta meal uh, there that she was talking about. So just a, a really good story. And I, I, I don't think we've seen the last of Keisha Lance Bottoms at all. Um, and this certainly is a nod to that. And remember, she was considered for vice president by, uh, yes. by Joe Biden. Uh, and is now the vice chair of voting rights for the, for the DNC. So I, I'm curious to see where she goes with that, too. Yeah, we will see a lot more of her, I'm sure. Uh, Sabrina Siddiqui, uh, who's usually here with a puppy story uh, for for our favorite story of the week. How about it, Sabrina? Yeah, so I always have to bring a dog story, and <laughs> I did. Oh. And it turns out that Pope Francis um, is maybe not the biggest fan of dogs. What? Um, he gave a speech uh, and he spoke oh, to the general audience oh, in Rome this week, and he basically said that people who have pets, and he specifically named instead of instead of children, <laughs> and he specifically named check dogs and cats. Um, he said that that is a form of selfishness. Oh, oh, and he oh. basically was lecturing people who have pets instead of children, and he said, you know, it may make people laugh, but it's a reality. And he went on to lament. That, that having a dog or a cat instead of a child is a denial of fatherhood and motherhood, and it diminishes us oh. and takes away our humanity. Oh. Um, so it was a little bit harsh, mm. I think. A lot of uh, parents of pets, uh, I think on social media, took offense to, to those <laughs> comments. Um, and, you know, we have seen the Pope in many uh, photos over the years uh, petting people's dogs and engaging with animals, but mm. it's quite clear he... He does not think that they are an adequate substitute for for children. Um, so I just wanted to highlight the Pope's uh, unexpected attack on dogs and cats. Oh <laughs> and, my! Um, we're clearly very strong feelings on on those who who prefer pets to children. Um, I'm sure there are many who disagree, and I th- I personally think people should do whatever they they feel like doing, and no one should be compelled to have a child if they prefer to have a dog or a cat. I think that. That's their own personal freedom. Well, I think maybe Pope Francis uh, should go back and read a little bit more about St. Francis, whom he's named after, right? And St. Francis's love of uh, animals uh, and all of uh, God's creatures. Well, um, thank you, Sabrina. My favorite story of the week, I have, it took me back to 2018. And I was there at the White House, in the East Room of the White House, the day that President Emmanuel Macron visited the White House for the first time. Uh, All of us reporters were gathered in the East Room to see the two presidents come in for their joint news conference. Uh, We were all seated there when the two first ladies walked in. 
And First Lady Melania Trump walked in wearing a white suit and a big white hat, the biggest white hat, biggest hat I've ever seen anybody wear, bigger than any cowboy hat or anything. She sat down in the front row, and I'm, I'm not, she blocked the view of half of the room for, for the two presidents because of this damn big hat that she was wearing. We all laughed about it. I haven't heard about the hat since until this week when it was announced that the former First Lady is auctioning off this hat. Uh, <laughs> and you can bid on the hat for an opening bid of $250,000. Um, now, I just want to point out that uh, if you have visited the American History uh, Museum of the Smithsonian, you will see that most First Ladies donate their wardrobes, the things that they wore as First Lady, to the Smithsonian uh, American Institution, American History Museum, not Melania Trump. She is going to make money off it, she says, to give to charity. But I think this is uh, this says a lot about the Trump family auctioning off uh, their clothing now that they wore uh, in the White House. Um, what, Bill, what, Bill, I'm surprised you haven't uh, picked up an NFT from Melania yet. <laughs> They're out there, aren't they? Right. <laughs> Oh, what a bunch of grifters it is. That's it. My comment. I can, I'm free to comment. I'm not a reporter. I'm a commentator. So there you go. Hey, thanks you so much. Panelists, Sabrina Siddiqui, thanks for being with us again. Maya King, always good to have you here. And Igor Babich as well. Thanks for a great job today. Thank you all for listening and invite you to join us on our next podcast. Uh, a great guest. He was uh, for a long time a top Republican former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland, former chair of the Republican National Committee, and now an outspoken critic of former president, defeated President Donald Trump. Michael Steele joins us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod next Tuesday. Take care of yourself. Remember, Omicron is out there, so please be careful. Wear that mask. Practice your social distancing. Take care of yourselves and come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.